here and hope you are expecting to hear from God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, on this wonderful Father's Day, turn with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. And we're going to be working our way, concluding in this chapter, verses 15 through 21. 15 through 21. Now, if you haven't been with us, in this chapter, we've been learning about Elijah came to the point where he had had enough. And he had just simply said, enough is enough, I quit, I resign, I want to die. And in the middle of this chapter, God meets him in a cave. He was isolated, uh, symbolic of his depression and, and disobedience. God meets him in that cave and teaches him that his grace is more than our enough. And we saw last week that God's grace is more than enough to remain loyal when there is no plan B. Sometimes we just want a plan B because it seems like God's plan A is not working. And God teaches us, no, there is no plan B. My grace is more than enough. But the good news gets gooder today, okay? Bad English, good theology. The good news gets gooder today, and here it is. Because the good news is that plan A stays in play because of the same grace that will get you through your hard times. Plan A stays in play because of the same sovereign grace that will make help you make it through your hard times. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you two truths that the Lord was teaching Elijah and it's simply this, plan A stays in play by God's sovereign grace. And, it, and he's teaching him two things by that. The reason God's plan, his best plan, his plan to bring him the greatest glory, the plan that will be for your greatest good, the plan that will bring the most people to salvation. That's God's plan A. And the reason that that stays in play, even when things seem really difficult and hard, is because God's sovereign grace chooses whom He will work through and how He will work. God's sovereign grace chooses whom He will work through and how He will work, work His will so that plan A stays in play. So let's look at that first point. And this will make more sense to you as we move through it. So here's the first point. God's sovereign grace freely chooses whom he will use so plan A stays in play. He will sovereignly choose whom he will use. And I like this quote. Eliza's job wasn't just to fight well in the present, but to prepare others for the future. God teaches Elijah and us, that no one is indispensable. Dads, as important as your role is, it's not just you that God will use in your children's lives. God will sovereignly choose whom He will use. So, look at verses 15, verse 15 in 1 Kings 19. Then the Lord said to him, Elijah, Go, return your way, to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, 
and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. He's telling him, Elijah, you think it all depends on you. But in my sovereign grace, I choose whom I will use to keep plan A in play. And he's going to anoint these three. So let's look at these guys. And let's see how these prophecies pan out so that God's plan A stays in play. God's sovereign grace chooses to anoint Hazael to be king over Aram. Aram. And you have a map there on your your, uh, notes. Aram is modern-day Syria. And you can see on your map there that it's north of Israel. It's north of the northern kingdom. Now, let's just ask him thing. Who is Hazael? Hazael's name, he's, first of all, he's a pagan god, and his name means God is seen or El is seen. And so this is, this is not the, the one true God. It refers to his pagan god that sees everything. And what's interesting in Hazael's life is the one true God sees everything that Hazael does and will hold him account for it. So, who is he? He's a nobody from nowhere. What's interesting about these kings, uh, uh, Jehu, in fact, as well as Haziel, there are literally in archaeology and history, there are statues and and uh, uh, archaeological uh, stones that have these guys' names and even images. There's even images of Haziel. So these are real people in history. But on a statue of one of his enemies... The enemy, the king of Assyria, if you look on your map, Assyria is north of Aram in Damascus. On a statue of his enemy king, it says this, Haziel is the son of nobody. Okay, the son, his enemy referred to him. And that wasn't just an insult. This guy had no royal lineage. He wasn't the son of anyone important. He was a nobody from nowhere. In fact, when he refers to himself in 2 Kings 8, when Elisha uh, anoints him, he says, Who am I? I am a mere dog. So this guy is a nobody from, nobody from nowhere. Now, how did his anointing take place? We read about it in 2 Kings 8. So this is going to play out. And it's going to happen 20 to 25 years after this prophecy. And that's when it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's not going to be Elijah that does it. It's going to be Elisha, the prophet that will be in Elijah's place. And so what happens in 2 Kings 8... 7 through 15, it's not a literal anointing with oil. Typically, when you would anoint a a king in Israel or a priest in Israel, you would pour oil on their heads as representative of the Holy Spirit using them and empowering them to represent the Lord and rule over His people. In this case, it is not a literal anointing with oil. Why? Because this is a pagan king. Nonetheless, God is going to use him to accomplish his purposes. 
And so he uses this word anointing, not of a literal oil poured on to represent the Holy Spirit, but to say, I am going to sovereignly use this pagan king to accomplish my purposes to judge Israel for their apostasy. So that kind of reminds us that as we look at the political powers of our world, Kim Jong-un and all that in Korea, and uh, our own presidents, our own leaders, prime ministers, God is sovereignly using whom he chooses to accomplish his purposes. That's a little comforting, actually, and it's kind of frightening at the same time, right? Okay, a little different. Now, here's what happens is that uh, it's a brutal story in 2 Kings 8. We won't take the time to read it, but you can read up on it. We'll get to it eventually. But it is a brutal story. Elisha shows up and says to, actually, Haziel is merely a servant of the king of Aram. The king of Aram gets sick. And the king of Aram, even though he's a pagan, knows about Elisha. And he says, Haziel, you're my servant. Go find out from the prophet of the Lord if my sickness is a sickness unto death. And so Haziel shows up to Elisha and says, hey, will my king die? And Elisha says to him, no, he will recover, but he will die. And he says, you will be king in his place. And then Elisha stares at Haziel and stares at him deeply and intently to the point to where Haziel gets embarrassed and suddenly Elisha begins to weep. And he says, why are you weeping? And Elisha says, I am weeping because I know of the brutal, deadly things you will do to the the kingdom of Israel. And he begins to weep. And Haziel leaves, goes back, and the king says, so what did the prophet say? And he said, all he tells him is, you will recover. And the very next day, Haziel grabs a a blanket, soaks it in water, lays it on the king of Aram, and suffocates him in his sickbed and takes over. That's the kind of brutality that this guy is. Now, that is a fascinating story of God's sovereignty and human depravity. And that is what the Lord is trying to teach Elijah and us in this present passage. God sovereignly chooses to work through whomever he chooses to accomplish his gracious purposes for his people. And he'll even use a pagan, brutal king to do it. And you're like, wait a minute. Does that mean the Lord approved of what he did? No, not in the least. Haziel will be held accountable by the Lord for what he did. But the good news is this. When it seems like plan A is not working, God, in his sovereign grace, freely chooses to use whomever he pleases to accomplish his gracious purposes for his people. And he can use the most brutal of pagan dictators to do it. Now, who did this anointing? Well, no one individually. Elisha did not pour oil on him. It was the Lord himself who didn't so much anoint him, but sovereignly choose to use him. 
And this isn't unusual in the Bible. In fact, God would, would use Nebuchadnezzar in the time of the Babylonians, the time of Daniel. God would use the king Cyrus of Persia. In fact, in Isaiah 44, and you can turn to this in your Bibles if you like. Actually, Isaiah 44, 8. Actually, the first part, Isaiah 45. If you want to turn there, Isaiah 45. The Lord calls this Persian king, who again is a pagan. Here's what he says. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Shepherd ruler is what that means. In verse 1, he says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand of power to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I'm going to empower this guy to do my will. Why, O Lord, would you use a pagan king? Isaiah answer, The Lord answers this in Isaiah 45, verse 3. So that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Why? For the nation of Israel. So that my plan A for my people will continue to be fulfilled. Though, And then he says these words, Though you have not known me. God is saying to this pagan king, through the prophet Isaiah, I will use Cyrus... I will use him as though he was my king, as though he was my Messiah, and I will use him to deliver my people, though he does not know me. Wow! That's God's sovereign grace at work to keep plan A in play by using whomever he chooses. Now, when did Haziel become king of Aram? Sometime between 845 and 841 B.C. His reign is going to overlap King Jehu, who we'll see in a moment. Now, how will King Haziel impact Israel's kingdom? Very simply, God is going to use King Haziel of Aram to punish Israel for its apostasy. He is going to punish Israel for their apostasy. Remember, this is what Elijah wanted. Elijah had brought these accusations of apostasy. And God said, look, I'm not going to judge at this moment. But please understand, my plan A is still in play. They will eventually be judged. But I'm going to choose to not use you, my prophet, but I'm going to use a pagan king. To punish them. So what do we learn from this? We learn that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And He does that so that plan A, which is His best plan for His people, will stay in play. Now this is also true of King Jehu. So let's move to him. God's sovereign grace chooses to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Now, who is Jehu? His name means Yahweh is he. In other words, who is God? And his name would be Jehu. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is he. And like Haziel, Jehu was a servant of the king he will replace. 
He was a captain in the army of Ahab's army. In second, and what's famous about Jehu, he was a crazy, wild chariot driver. Jehu is famous for being a wild chariot driver. In fact, he's described in 2 Kings 9.20 with these words, a watchman is on the gate and he's looking out and they're expecting someone to come and he sees this, this chariot coming and he says, I think it's Jehu because he drives his chariot furiously. So Jehu was a hot rodder on his chariot. So anyway, just throwing that out to you. He's famous for that. Now, how did his anointing happen? You've got to go to 2 Kings 9. 2 Kings 8 was a, uh, Hazael, the pagan. 2 Kings 9 is Jehu, who's going to be literally anointed with oil to be king of Israel. Now, why literally anointed with oil? To symbolize that he is a believer and that the oil is the Holy Spirit empowering him to be God's king. Now, who did this anointing? Not Elijah, even though he gets the prophecy, and not even Elisha, who talked to Haziel. This time, Elisha is going to send another prophet who's nameless to go and literally pour oil on Jehu and announce, you are now God's chosen one to be king. Now, when did this happen? When did this happen? About 841 B.C., just a few years after King Haziel became king of Aram. He ruled for about 28 years. So these two guys overlap. But I want you to understand this is happening 25 years after it's predicted here in 1 Kings. In fact, it's happening 10 years after Elijah was taken up into heaven by the fiery chariot. So here's a prediction. It's a prediction given to the prophet Elijah to teach him that in God's sovereign grace, he freely chooses whomever he wants to keep plan A in play. And even though he's saying, Elijah, you're going to do this, the reality is it's the people, the disciple of Elijah, this next prophet that we're going to see, God uses, God has a long-term plan, and he will use different people. It does, so let me put it this way, and especially dads, because of today. Dads, it doesn't all depend on you. It doesn't all depend on you. God will use whomever He chooses to work His plan for your family. Okay? He's going to use you. But you've got to have the long term. And you've got to understand, God will bring people around you to help you with that. Now, how will Jehu impact the dynasty of Ahab? Well, here's the reality. You've got the, you got, just got God's sovereignty at work. He's going to use a pagan king in Aram to punish the nation, and he's going to use King Jehu to punish Ahab and his family. Jehu is going to be the guy who's going to kill Ahab, Jezebel, and all of Ahab's children and family because of the wicked things that they have done. This is what Elijah has wanted to see. God judge the wicked. 
And God's saying, look, Elijah, you're not going to... Elijah had already been used to kill 450 prophets. He wanted to finish the job. And the Lord's saying to him, I, in my sovereign grace, will choose whomever I want to keep my plan fulfilled. And so he is going to bring judgment. So it's really interesting. So you got Jehu being used of God to punish Ahab and his wicked dynasty. But then King Haziel from Aram is coming from the north to punish Jehu and the whole nation of Israel. Now that just puts a different view of the news the next time you watch it. Don't think Fox or CNN or MSNBC understands what is going on. There is a sovereign God who rules over the nations, and he puts men in power and women, and he puts men and women down. And his sovereign grace chooses whomever he wants to use for his purposes. So sometimes it's better to turn off the news and get on your knees and praise the sovereign God who is working through the nations. Are you with me on that? That could change a lot of attitudes in here. Because I don't know about me, when I watch the news, I just get negative. And you start choosing sides, and you start dipping into identity politics, and it pits you against one another, us against one another, instead of uniting around a sovereign God who is graciously working out His purposes. Isn't that cool? And so that gives you a little news perspective. Now, what's next? Well, here's the next. There's a third person God wants to use. God's sovereign grace chooses to anoint... Elisha to be prophet in Elijah's place. So it's not just a pagan king. It's not just a godly king. It's also God's prophet. And we see this in verse 16. Now, who is Elisha? His name means, my God is salvation. Elijah means, Yahweh is my God. Elisha means, my God is is salvation. And who is he? He's chosen of the Lord to replace Elijah as God's main prophet. He's a farmer. We're going to see this in verses 19 of a well-to-do family that had 12 or uh, six teams of oxen uh, for a total of 12 oxen, uh, or I'm sorry, 12 pairs of oxen, 12 pairs of oxen, which would be 24 oxen. That's a lot of oxen. He came from a rich farming family, but he's a farmer. And he's the son of Shaphat, and he is from Abel Mahola. Uh, now, here's what you want to realize about him. Elisha is this godly farmer. He's another one of the 7,000 who remained faithful. Remember, Elijah says, it's all me. And yet there was Obadiah, the steward of Ahab. He was a godly man. And here we have a farmer who no one knows about until this moment, who is a godly farmer. You see, God chooses to use whomever. Listen, you men, don't downplay your jobs. Don't downplay and think. So many men say, well, Christian men, well, what I do isn't important to the kingdom of God. Well, who you are is important to the kingdom of God. It's how you do business. It's who you are in the workplace. And God will use 
anyone, man, woman, who will remain loyal in times of apostasy. So, how did this anointing happen? Well, we have it right here. This is the focus. The focus isn't on the pagan king. The focus isn't even on Jehu, king of Israel. The focus is on the prophet. So, let's look at verses 19 through 21 and let's read it. So, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen. Notice 12 pairs representing, I think, or reminding us of the 12 tribes. This is a godly man who is praying and desiring for the reunification of God's people. He's uh, 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. So he throws on him. Remember, Elijah ran around like a mountain man for God, and he had this this, uh, coat of fur. And you could always know, you knew Jehu because of his chariot driving, and you know Elijah because of his hairy garment. And that's kind of how prophets, uh, don't don't ask me why, this is just how prophets, prophets kind of lived. And so when he saw Elisha farming, he threw that on to him, which indicated you are now going to become one of God's prophets. And notice Elisha immediately understood that because he was a godly man. He listened to the prophets of God. He knew what the prophets of God dressed like and what they did. So notice verse 20 We see his godliness in 1 Kings. He immediately left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. He is eager to follow, but he wants to honor his parents. And he said to him, Go back again. For what have I done to you? Now, that sounds, it's, it's a question in our Bibles. Really, what he's saying is, yeah, go honor your parents, but don't forget what I just did. Don't forget what I just did. In other words, don't be tempted to disobey God's call on your life. Well, Elisha wasn't going to disobey. Look at verse 21. So we, he returned from following him, and he took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen. This guy is not looking back. He's burning the ships. There is no retreat. There is no return, and he wants his family and his village to know it. This guy has remained loyal in the worst of times. And he gave it to the people and they ate. They're celebrating. Then he arose and he followed Elijah and ministered to him. So he is going to replace Elijah, but first he needs to be discipled by the older prophet. So how did this happen? Well, we just read that. Who did this anointing? Elijah did it, but he didn't pour oil. He threw his prophetic mantle his hairy garment on Elisha. When did Elisha become prophet? Not until 2 Kings 2. It isn't until Elijah is taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot that Elisha then takes over in his place. But in the meantime, he's going to be mentored and discipled. And again, dads, how important is it for us to be mentoring? Because ultimately, here's the big thing. When you're When your dad and your parents die, 
it is a sobering, solemn moment because you kind of realize, whoa, it's no longer looking to them. Now I'm the end of the line. Now I'm the patriarch. Well, guess what? Someday, dads, we're going to die. And who is going to be the godly generation to come in our place? And so Elijah is going to discipling. Now, how will this prophet impact Elijah and, and Israel? Well, he's going to carry out what the Lord is telling Elijah to do. Elijah, God's telling Elijah, you're going to anoint Haziel, but in fact, it's his disciple who's going to do it. And he says, look, you're going to anoint Jehu, but in reality, it's going to be your disciple that's going to do it. In fact, Elisha is so godly, he says to Elijah, I want a double portion of your spiritual power. And he gets it. And when you read the story of Elisha, he does twice the miracles that Elijah does in the Bibles. Now, what's going on here? God is reminding Elijah and us that he, in his sovereign grace, chooses whomever he wants to fulfill his purposes. And what is given to one person isn't necessarily fulfilled in that one person's lifetime. So you've got to have a long-term focus. And the people the Lord chooses to use are often not significant in the world's eyes. Haziel was a nobody from nowhere. Elisha was an insignificant farmer. Well off, but he's a farmer. Okay? Even Elijah. Elijah, no one knew who he was, and we don't even know where he came from. It's not who you are, it's whose you are that impacts how you will impact others. It's your relationship with the Lord. And basically, what the Lord is trying to tell Elijah and us is, look, don't get depressed when it seems like God's purposes aren't being fulfilled in your life or in the world. Because God is going to use more than you, and He's going to use more than your our little lifespan. Seventy years is nothing. Eighty years. God is telling this to Elijah, and it's not going to happen for 25 more years, and Elijah is going to be already in heaven. So rest in God's plan. Now, here's the second thing I want you to see. God's sovereign grace freely chooses how He will work to keep plan A. So God doesn't always work the way we want Him to, but He will work the way that is most gracious and will fulfill his purposes. So look at verses 17 through 18. 15 and 16 says, here's who I'm going to use. 17 and 18, here's how I'm going to do it. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And if you want to see an example of that, let's look at Elisha. Okay? Now, in that, I want to show you a couple things. First of all, God's grace works in condemnation. That's verse 
that's verse 17. God's grace is at work even in judgment or condemnation. Now, it's interesting. Elijah, I believe, went to Mount Sinai wanting judgment on Israel. And God introduced him to the sound of silence. Because he said, look, my plan is in play. There is no plan B. And my grace will work out that judgment on my timetable and not yours. And so what happens is, he tells, he tells Elijah, I'm not going to use you to judge Israel. I'm going to use the pagan king, Haziel. I'm going to use the Israelite king, Jehu. I'm going to use their swords and the word of the prophet who's going to replace you. And that's what he's telling them here. Now, you might be asking at this point, how is grace at work in condemnation? I thought, I thought grace was about forgiveness, not judgment. And you are right. But when you reject grace, what is left? What's left when you reject grace? Judgment. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. God's grace works to delay judgment for the undeserving but does not deny judgment will eventually come. God's grace delays judgment for undeserved. They don't deserve to have delay. What do rebels deserve from God? What What do they deserve? Judgment. judgment. How soon? Now. Immediately. Immediately. But God's grace is at work in judgment. Why? He, out of His mercy, delays judgment that they deserve, but that delay is not a denial that it will eventually come if you don't repent. That's pretty significant. Now look, you have in your notes, the Lord had already delayed His wrath for a hundred years. Hey, Israel as a northern kingdom didn't even deserve to exist. Because Jeroboam, their first king, set up two golden calves and said, Israel, here is your God that delivered you from Egypt. Now, right there, fire should have come down from God. A hundred years later, they're still surviving by the grace of God. Secondly, the Lord will delay His judgment on Israel again for another 20 to 25 years. As bad as Ahab and Jezebel have been, God's going to delay for another 20 to 25 years. Why? Because He's a gracious God. And then number three, the Lord will delay His judgment of Ahab and His dynasty until after Ahab dies. Why does He do that? Well, that's a story we're going to get to. But what happens is, Elijah gives judgment to Ahab, and Ahab humbles himself, and God says to Elijah, Do you see him humbling himself? I'm not going to bring this judgment on him until after he's dead. He won't have to see it. And God is even gracious, what? In condemnation. Are you with me on this? And then think of this. The Lord will delay the final conquest and captivity of Israel for a hundred more years. They won't repent. They'll continue in their sin, and God will delay a hundred more years until 722 B.C. Assyria is going to plow through Aram, 
and come down and take northern kingdom into captivity. And let me give you a sobering thought. The northern kingdom has never returned from captivity yet. Judah in the south returned, but the northern kingdom has yet to be restored. And if God's going to keep His promise to reunify Israel, then that's going to need to happen on a national basis in the future, or God has not been true to His word. And so let me show one more. The Lord is still delaying His final judgment since Christ's first coming for over 2,000 years. You see, there is grace in judgment until the final judgment. And when the final judgment comes, there will be no more grace and no more chance for repentance. So if you're here today and you're not living for the Lord, be thankful for God's grace. He's given you the opportunity today to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, it's not just judgment, it's salvation. Look at verse 18. God's grace is at work for salvation. And so after all this judgment in verse 17, look at what happens in verse 18. Through judgment, God is going to bring salvation. So here's the principle. God's grace works for salvation through judgment, this side of the final judgment. I wish I could take you through the whole Bible, but... As you trace God's plan A through the Bible, He always brings judgment and then a salvation of a remnant through that judgment. And there's no better place to look for that than at the cross. God poured His judgment on Jesus Christ, and yet through that judgment, God brought salvation of His elect people through the gospel. Pretty amazing thing. And that brings to the third point, God's sovereign grace at work through election. Through election. So God's grace is at work in condemnation for salvation through election. And that's in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. It says, I will leave. I'm the one that's going to provide a remnant. It's my grace. That, that literally means I have reserved for myself. It's the standard Hebrew word for an elect remnant. God in His grace will save some out of the many for His glory. And so here's the principle. God's grace means His election is sure and His calling is irrevocable. His election is sure and His calling is irrevocable. Turn your Bibles to Romans 11. Turn your Bibles to Romans 11, 1 through 6. You say, well, I don't know if I see election in that passage. Well, it's in that word, but understand this, the Apostle Paul gives us the divine interpretation. Look at Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Romans 11, and let's look at verses 1 through 6. I say then, has not God, has, has, God has not rejected his people, has he, nation of Israel? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm part of the remnant. I'm saved. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew and elected to be His people. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Judge them, Lord. They're apostates. 
Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. We're going to be extinct. But, verse 4, what is the divine response to him? And there's our verse, 1 Kings 19, 17, or 18. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice, God's gracious election. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What's he saying? He's saying simply this, that the nation of Israel is still being judged by the Lord, and yet in God's election, He is choosing a remnant to be saved out of them through the church, and one day He's going to save the entire nation at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I could lay all that out for you, but I cannot. But here's the point. Election is a comfort to God's people. That no matter what's going down, and no matter how much persecution comes our way, God knows who, the, who, who his, his people are, and His sovereign grace secures your salvation. Can we hear an amen? And His sovereign grace keeps His purposes in play still today. Well, you say, well, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? That election thing freaks me out. Well, the last thing, God's sovereign grace is at work according to revelation. This is why Elisha is so emphasized in this passage. Listen, God's election comes through His revelation. God's grace brings revelation through mediation. God's grace brings revelation through mediation. Here's how you know if you're elect today, one of God's elect. Has someone shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you, and have you responded by faith? Well, then you're one of God's elect. You don't go looking introspectively. You look to the Lord and His sovereign grace. You look to Jesus Christ, judgment through sal- salvation through judgment. You listen to the gospel. You respond with an obedient faith. And the Lord anoints you with the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and gives you the ability to live like one of God's loyal remnant. Do you see it? So, God's grace is at work in condemnation for salvation through election according to revelation. And the most important thing about this passage is God's word's going to continue long after Elijah is taken to heaven. And dad's, The most important thing that you can be doing for your spouse, your family, this church, is to make sure you're in the Word of God. And this is why I'm giving this out. You may already have a copy, but have you used it? And if you've used it, who could you take through it or give this through? Because ultimately, God is at work. And so here's the the thing, and we'll end with this. God's grace, plan A, by God's grace, plan A is still in play So don't delay, respond today. I spent a lot of time on that. By God's grace, plan A is still in play. So don't you delay, because the Lord's delaying His judgment. Don't delay, respond today.
And you just look through that. The Lord is still graciously delaying His final judgment. But don't mistake delay for denial that it's coming. Turn to the Lord today. Secondly, He's still graciously calling His elect remnant by the word of the gospel. Have you heard it? Respond today. And He's still graciously sending His imperfect people. Elijah was a mess. Maybe not a hot mess, but he was a mess. And God still sent him, and God still used him, and he can use you. So listen, share the gospel, and then ask God to open hearts and draw his elect people to himself. And then finally, he is still graciously showing himself to be faithful in the past, like he was to Moses, sovereign over the future, and merciful in the present. God is so gracious to Elijah even though he was depressed, disobedient. Dad, maybe you want to quit. Maybe you feel like you're not having an impact on your kids like you wish. Maybe you're at that point in your life where you realize, I can't go back. I can't go back. Oh, if I had a second chance. But understand this. God's grace, by God's grace, plan A is still in play. So don't delay. Respond today. Because He's a gracious God, and He's a loving Heavenly Father. Is that not good stuff? I know that was a lot of history, but God's involved in the details. You know, everybody wants God to be involved in the details of my life. Well, okay, we went through Haziel, Jehu, Elijah. We went through the details of these guys. And just understand, God is at work to accomplish. I'm just in awe of a passage like this. Don't even pretend to understand it all. But some of you have faced tragedy that is irreversible this side of heaven. Just understand that God's plan A is still in play. So don't delay. Respond today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God and a gracious Father. And you're those things at the same time. I thank you for each person here. I don't know what brought them here today. I don't know what struggles they're through. I know some have been through very deep waters. And some have many, many things, we all do really, to rejoice in. But Lord, let us get our eyes off ourselves and onto you and know that your best plan is still being worked out. Lord, let us not quit. Let us not stay in the cave like Elijah, but let's be like Elijah. Let's get up, get out of the cave, and respond to the sovereign grace of God because He gives us the power and the ability to do His will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.